This week's edition of Romaniacs is brought to you by Tide, the nimble small business banking service. Do you run a small business? If you do, then you know that simply running the show takes all your time and energy, and banks don't help. It takes weeks to set up an account. There's loads of unjustified fees, they're so slow, and they're not built for small businesses. Tide is a new kind of service designed to save your small business time and money. You can sign up in just three minutes and get a UK sort code and a commercial MasterCard. You'll get brilliant features, including an automatic assistant that chases your invoices for you, integration with major bookkeeping and foreign exchange software, and customer service by instant messenger. Best of all, there are no monthly fees, ever. Tide is small business banking the way it ought to be, and we've got a special offer for Romaniacs listeners. Tide is offering six months of free transfers. So that's no monthly fee ever, plus free transfers for six months. Just go to tide.co, no need for the UK, and use the promo code RPOD. After your six months ends, you'll move to a pay-as-you-go Tide account, charging only 20p per transaction. So it's farewell to monthly fees, the bane of a small business, and more time for you to concentrate on building your company. Visit Tide.co and use the promo code RPOD. Hello and welcome back to the untrustworthy EU-funded Romaniacs podcast. We will, of course, be sending all the details of today's show to Chris Heaton-Harris MP, the Poundland Joe McCarthy, for a thorough ideological inspection. I'm Dorian Linsky and I'm joined by one of our regulars, Peter Collins, armchair Brexit hunter. Hi, Hello, Peter. good morning. But sadly, Ian is currently in a windowless room being interrogated by Mr. Heaton-Harris for his <laughs> treacherous <laughs> sentiments. Did I? I've been away for two weeks. Obviously, everybody's been sad about that. Did I miss anything? Is it fixed now? Well, we're still doomed if that's what you wanted to know. <laughs> I've actually got angrier while I was away. That's good. I didn't realise that this was like a release valve until I became like filled with impotent fury, which I'll be sharing with the listeners today. <laughs> Looking forward to it. And with us today we have a special guest. Nina Schick is a political commentator specialising in EU policy and German politics and a regular face on the BBC, Sky and Bloomberg TV. She was communications director with the think tank Open Europe. She worked with David Cameron on his EU renegotiations. And she worked on Emmanuel Macron's successful campaign for the French presidency. So thanks for that. <laughs> Nina grew up in Kathmandu with German and Nepalese parents, and she's been living in London for years. So as you can imagine, she was delighted when Britain voted to leave. Hi, Nina. Thanks for coming. Hi, thanks for having me. Do you find Brexit a, a personal affront? Well, let's just say that it hasn't been uh, the best situation because obviously coming here as an international and then being kind of dedicating my whole life to the UK and spending my entire adult life here to find out that, you know, I don't even qualify for permanent residency was a bit of a slap in the face. But, you know, things seem to be going well or not. <laughs> Obviously not. <laughs> Obviously not. So it's kind of uh, my mission now, being German and having worked in German politics, to German-splain Brexit um, <laughs> to, to Brexiteers, which, you know, people sometimes find very offensive because, you know, the German car manufacturers. Um, and you advised on the Remain campaign. Was there a moment when you thought, uh-oh, we've lost this one? Or? Yeah, definitely. I was doing a talk at a bank in London and we were discussing... Um, access to services and what that would mean Brexit would mean for financial services in the wake of the Brexit vote and the there were employees at the bank who were saying well would you the only question they asked me was would you join the EU now so they were so anti-EU and feminine I was like well if you can't sell the EU argument to uh, a banking audience in London mm. then we've probably lost so 
I definitely had a, a premonition that it might be going this way. And where, where were you on the... Uh when the result came through? Well, I was in London. We were obviously viewing the results coming in and I had my one of my colleagues uh, who is a little bit of a genius when he came to like counting the constituency seats and how much percent swing the vote would have to go each way. So by about 1 a.m. in the morning, we were pretty sure that um, Brexit was going to win. And obviously the next day, I was doing loads of interviews on College Green and it was a real pleasure to see Nigel Farage and co <laughs> claiming Independence Day uh, on the College Green. So, yeah, it, it was a memorable and sad day. So on College Green, is it, is it basically you can look around and, and on, there's just like countless people being interviewed around? Exactly. So like the whole world's media was there and, you know, you had uh, lots of saddened remainers and lots of jubilant leavers. And, you know, there, there, were, there were some people walking around with their British bulldogs with flags on it, you know. So it was very much a feeling of let's make Britain great again. So interestingly, over a year on now, uh, I, I don't know how, how that sentiment is going, if it's, if it's been diminished. Nigel's <laughs> not so happy now. No, he, he seems isn't. tense. Yeah, he, he does seem tense. I mean, uh, well, I mean, he's obviously lining up the rhetoric that Brexit has been uh, sabotaged, you know, because it's not his Brexit. But that's not only something you see Nigel doing. You see lots of Brexiteers doing it. And, you know, I always knew that as soon as the reality of the negotiations and how difficult it is becomes clear, A, you'll blame the EU. B, you start blaming your own politicians and institutions. And that is simply not viable for a democratic uh, system like Great Britain. It's, it's very dangerous. Oh, and now we're blaming academics as well. So It's always academics' fault, isn't it? Yeah, With their the thinking and their words. <laughs> facts. <laughs> facts. facts. Treacherous bunch. Uh, we'll be talking to Nina a lot more later in the show. And as promised, we'll be doing our first Romaniacs book club. Starting like the massive cliches that we are with George Orwell's 1945 essay, Notes on Nationalism, in which the beloved centrist granddad anatomizes the impulses that drive jingoism and seemingly predicts 2017, some 70 years before the fact. If you haven't read it, now's a good time to press the pause button and download it. It's only about 8,000 words. Pretend you're back at university and you're doing a cramming on the bus. Before we get cracking, here's Peter with a few gentle reminders. Don't forget you can support Romaniacs and help us to reach more people via the crowdfunding site Patreon. Make a monthly pledge and you'll be helping us to expand the show and develop video and live events too. We're looking at January for Romaniacs Live, so there you go. There's already at least one reason to look forward to 2018, the year when the last business to quit Britain switches out the lights. Our beloved backers will get Romaniacs mugs, T-shirts and bags, depending on how much loot you cough up, of course, plus early bird access to tickets for those events. You can find a link to our Patreon page via our website, romaniacs.com. And of course, if you haven't done so already, please take a moment to subscribe via Apple Podcasts and give us a nice review and star rating. We are now top 20 regulars in the Apple Podcasts news and politics section, Pop Pickers, and it's all because of you, not off. <laughs> I keep bumping into people who, uh, who listen do they? and actually come up and go, oh, you do Romaniacs, I really like Romaniacs. So I ask them for money. Of course. Obviously. Yeah. I think that's what we do. Just have a little tin and rattle it, yes. <laughs> Cash in hand. <laughs> OK, let's start with a roundup of the news. First up are the leaks from Theresa May's ill-fainted Brussels dinner with Jean-Claude Juncker. The EC President's Chief of Staff, Martin Selmer, had to publicly deny that the dinner had gone badly after the Frankfurter Allgemeine Zeitung. <laughs> how, how did I do there? Frankfurter Allgemeine Zeitung. Not bad. 
Yeah. <laughs> I think <laughs> I think I think I think Nina pipped me there. Described May as pleading for her political life and appearing anxious, tormented, despondent and discouraged. You may have seen the harrowing picture of her sitting glumly at a conference table with only pot plants for company. <laughs> Juncker denied the picture of desperate and weakened Prime Minister, saying that May was in good shape and fighting. Fighting to keep her head up in that picture, I think. But the whole mess has been interpreted as a classic piece of softening up from the Brexit side, designed to create the impression that if no deal happens, as Nina said, it's the fault of these intransigent, leaking Europeans. To cap off the performance, May then came home and announced to the Commons that there will be no transition deal without a settled trade agreement. Was this another bit of uh, theatre to keep the, the Brexiters stirred up? Well, it looks like it to me. I mean, you know, that everybody, yet again, as we record this podcast on Wednesday, the, the City of London institutions are saying, for goodness sake, we need a transition clear by the end of the year, otherwise businesses really are going to start pressing the button and going. We've got Toyota, you know, one of the, one of the world's biggest car makers, say, coming out and saying that its plant, big plant, big employer in Britain, is is in in doubt. And still, it seems that she has to say, "Oh well, you know, we're going to sit here and be we're going to be tough in these talks, and we're not going to th- even talk about transition until there's a trade deal." Well, it's just impossible because you need, you know, you need not just. Uh, a, a, an implementation phase. Before that, you need a long standstill phase of several years while we while we actually negotiate this trade agreement. And you have to have a transition ready before then. And there's a bigger point to be made here as well. I mean, given the difficulties in just negotiating the divorce, um, these difficulties are going to rise up again in the transition because from the EU's perspective, it's pretty clear. If you want to have a transitional period to avoid you know, the so-called cliff edge, then the UK will have to accept in that transition period the jurisdiction of the ECJ. They'll have to adhere to EU regulatory norms and standards and probably have to continue to accept free movement of people. Now, I don't know if the cab- that's going to be acceptable to the cabinet. You already have, you know, on the Brexit side, people saying, well, free movement will end uh, as soon as we leave in March 2019. We're going to make our own regulation. We're going <laughs> to start negotiating our own trade deals. That is incompatible with the transition. So we can't agree the divorce. We're probably going to fight it out over the transition. And if this is hardball from the EU perspective, you ain't seen nothing yet until we start negotiating, negotiating you know, the wide-reaching FTA. That's going to be a whole nother ball game because by that point the UK really will be a third country outside of the EU and uh, you can't just go into negotiations like that with the big boys and be like well you're not listening to me you're not treating me fairly it's going to be tough and it's going to take many years so let's just say we do have a transitional agreement we somehow get there and it's time capped for two years which is what the Brexiteers want because they don't want this to become like an ad infinitum remaining in the EU Okay, well, the EU also wants to make sure that that's time capped because they don't want to be dealing with this forever. Then you're going to face the cliff edge again because in those two years, I can almost guarantee you, you're not going to have the kind of broad-reaching FTA that the UK wants because it's going to be the most comprehensive FTA ever negotiated um, and it'll likely take five to eight years, which is what Michel Barnier was saying yesterday. And what do you think the EU make of... British negotiators? Do they think that they're kind of, that they're sort of, you know, that they're playing hardball, that they're pandering to hard Brexit sentiment at home, or that just that they're kind of weak and disorganized? What's the impression? Well, I think like the actual negotiators, people who are doing the civil servants who are doing the grunt work in Brussels, realize the gravity of the situation and realize that they don't have much leverage in the talks. However, the big problem for them is they don't have political direction. If the, inti- if the cabinet cannot say, A, 
um, do we even agree to the financial commitments we've made, which is the thing that's holding up the divorce? B, do we accept the EU's terms for the transition because the UK has very limited leverage? And then C, what kind of FTA do we actually want? You know, the final destination. And indeed, there was a story that came out, um, I think, earlier this week in The Sun saying Theresa May won't even start talking about future trading relationships with her own cabinet because there's bound to be splits. So from the EU's perspective, it's... Uh, slightly bemused because how do you negotiate with a partner that doesn't know what it wants which is why um, given the leaks that happened with the story the FAZ story um, and the reports that Marco was very angry about that it's not because they love Theresa May but can you imagine the situation that we put in as negotiators if all of a sudden there's a leadership contest here in the UK it's even more chaos and it means that you can't negotiate basically and, just I think, reality. and the point we always like to make is that, meanwhile, all the other current countries in the EU continue to have their own politics. Oh. Uh, you know, Angela Merkel's got a coalition to hold together. We've also got the prospect of an anti-EU Czech government that wants to talk at least vaguely about exiting the EU and possibly just to get more, more concessions. We've Czech, got the Czech, Catalonia. Czechs it. Czechs it, yes. <laughs> Czechs it. Oh, we've said it for the first time on this podcast, <laughs> Czechs it. Uh, we've got uh, Catalexit as well, uh, you know, the, 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 the idea of Catalonia breaking away from Spain I'm, and then seeking to rejoin. That's not as good a word, mate. <laughs> it isn't. Checks, it. checks yourself before you wrecks yourself. Indeed. But the thing is, all of this, it seems to me, will change, you know, will, will, will affect the way that uh, the negotiating mandate somehow that Barnier has. I can't imagine any of this, maybe it's just my lack of imagination, I can't imagine any of this making it easier for the guys in Brussels to go easy on Britain, it, you know, no matter how much Theresa May begs or doesn't beg. I can imagine them thinking, we've got to stick to this idea that, you know, you're not going to get a, a comfortable deal, you will be treated like Canada, you will be treated as a third country, you'll get a sort of moderately okay FTA deal, and you will not be given any special, because we, if we say yes to you, the Czechs will want this, the Catalonians will want a special deal, and the Spaniards will, will, will you know, the people in Madrid will mm. object to it. So surely it's going to make things even more hardline from their side. And then in terms of kind of May's reputation, I mean, what does sort of Merkel or what, what I mean, sort of make of her? Because I mean, I've, I mean, there was certain, that, that image, you know, that photograph of her at the table, I mean, I felt just on a real human level, even if I, like if you showed that to a child and they didn't know who that was, they'd go, why why, why is, is the lady, lady so sad? Why is this lady so sad? <laughs> um, can I cheer her up somehow? Like, it, it's sort of like, I almost wondered whether they were trying to sort of go for this sort of pity gambit. Just like, look, you've got to be nice. You've got to be nicer to her. Otherwise, she's going to fall and you're going to get somebody worse. Like, I mean, well, the, Euro yeah, the European perspective of British politics and Theresa May right now is that they are actually looking at what's happening in the Conservative Party and they see what's happened after the general election and they just see British politics in chaos. And in their view, this is obviously a direct consequence of the referendum. And as for May, they see that they see her as a very weak leader, but better the devil you know. They want they think she is the best choice given that they're afraid that someone like Boris Johnson might take over if Theresa May is out. But there's a broader point to be made here. If you're going on about your global Britain and you're going to win the best for Britain in these negotiations and hear the British lion roar, you know, that's not compatible with the actual reality in how they see it. Well, I think how we all see it when you consider the chaos, the political chaos here in this country. And if you're a leader like Theresa May, inspiring pity 
is never a good thing. I mean, if you're inspiring pity in negotiations, that's fine. You know, you might get some sympathy. And indeed, that's what we saw in the European Council summit last week where EU leaders were trying to prop up May. But does that make her a better or stronger negotiating partner? No, it certainly doesn't. No, there was a picture of her where she was like somebody, like a passenger in the back seat of a car, kind of sticking <laughs> it, like trying to make conversation. What's, what are you guys talking about up yeah. front? Sad, isn't it? Yes, I've got this image of you sitting there with your daughter, the bedtime story, saying, well, this lady's very sad, but it's OK. Here comes Boris the Clown to cheer her up. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> rips off the mask. Um, our second story of the week is a very stark warning from the creative industries that controls on immigration could seriously harm the film, music, video game and general creative sectors. The Creative Industries Federation said that £87 billion a year generated by the sector was at risk if immigration was restricted because these industries are heavily reliant on freelance labour from across the EU. The CIF survey of 250 creative firms found three-quarters employed EU workers and two-thirds could not fill those jobs with British recruits. So not only will our Brussels sprouts rot in the fields, but we'll have nobody to code Grand Theft Auto for us either. <laughs> the creative sector is the fastest growing in the UK and employs nearly 2 million people. It's 25% more than 2011. And its freelance employees tend to be young, free and single, especially the gaming programmers, and mobile. <laughs> <laughs> so they don't need to stay in Britain. Uh, so do the, I mean, this is, do, do the hardcore breaksters sort of really care about the cultural side of things is this is this a good argument for them i think well there is the, there is the argument that oh well in the brexit heart heartlands there aren't that many creative people and they you know they'll just say oh it's a bunch of you know overpaid ninnies with their skinny lattes and so on but they're wrong of course you know when, when i hear the word culture i reach for my gdp calculator you know that um the culture industries uh, as shown by the figures you've just described are very very big we have this fixation in britain this victorian fixation uh, a manufacturing fetish, as though um, employment in factories and manufacturing output are somehow vastly more important than any, uh, any other forms of economic activity, any other forms of export earnings, any other forms of um, um, employment. That is just wrong. Look at the iPhone. Apple makes the profits. It doesn't make the phones. The, the company that makes the phones out in China gets a very small share of the of the value created and that the amount, the, and if you look at the, the, the share of jobs, we need to, the, the, but the trouble is, you're right, in the Brexit heartlands, people may not understand that, that these are not just a few people. But this is something that, that you know, the British government has been aware of for, for ages. I remember writing an article a few years ago about uh, soft power and just the economics of the creative industry. And obviously the, the, the 2012 opening ceremony was this kind of enormous showcase for, among other things, you know, British culture. And it was going, look at all these wonderful <coughs> things that we create. And of course, if you're looking at, say, oh, I know, like, say, like a James Bond film, the the number of people that you need to put together like the CGI for something like that. You know, I've, I've done these things through film journalism, spoken to some of these people, and they are from all over. And you do need to call them in often at quite short notice because it's just like, OK, we need to work on this particular sort of sequence. And I wonder whether like w what that needs in order to continue is is it's sort of total freedom of movement. Like I don't, yeah. you can't, yeah. you can't be stuck in the Home Office queue, can you? Exactly. And there's a lesson um, from the 1960s. Um, from the City of London. Up until the 1960s, the City of London was kind of in decline like the rest of Britain. But then JFK uh, made a, uh, what turned out to be a serious error by imposing a new tax uh, to stop Americans from investing uh, in, uh, in foreign securities. What this did is it made all of the big multinationals, including the overseas arms of American multinationals, 
go to London to issue bonds. That became what's called the euro bond, the euro, sorry, the euro dollar market. That was the basis of the city of London that we have today, this massive, massive source of employment. It was a colossal error by the American government at the time, making it all go away. The lesson for us is we are about to do the same and see all these people from all over the world creating all this tax revenue, billions of pounds a year, all go to Paris. And, and there's a broader point to be made about the fact that the British economy is 80% of GDP is generated by services. You know, what is Britain really good at? Selling its cultural services, financial services, legal services, you know. And the, the fact is that with Brexiteers, you know, there's a cognitive dissonance on a massive scale. Because if you are leaving the world's largest free trading area, so the single market, and you're leaving the customs union because you want to control immigration, then you have to be really honest with the electorate about what that actually means for the part of your industry, for the part of your economy that's actually generating the most GDP. So it's not just the creative um, industries that are going to be affected by the clampdown on free movement, but you know industries like fintech. They need access. If you hear them over and over again, they need access to talent. Fintech. <laughs> financial, like financial technology. technology so like the, 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 the digital the digital the <laughs> <laughs> so the digital economy here in britain is actually one of the fastest growing sectors um generating billions and billions of uh, pounds in revenue for um the treasury um and of course they have a highly mobile international workforce and if they can't these are the type of people as well who if they can't come here they'll just go somewhere else so the fact is that this clampdown on immigration is going to have an economic impact. And I think Brexiteers can't say on one hand, you know, we're going to be this global free trading nation that's going to invite the brightest and the best. And on the other hand, if you look at what government policy is actually going to do, it's going to do exactly the opposite. But some of these people, they're not really part of the conversation. The conversation regarding immigration and how that affects the economy on a, um, on a kind of micro scale it is the kind of the Eastern European construction worker coming over, taking a job for the, you know, native Brit, you know, and working for less. Like, that is the kind of when that's the sort of image, that's the first thing you think of through the press when you're talking about a European worker here. And there's, there's no, there's not nearly enough discussion about, I mean, I, I must admit, I didn't even realise the percentages involved here, like just how many people involved in putting together a film, for example, you know, and how... They don't have time to go through all of these kind of permits because they might be just being called in for a particular kind of sequence. And it's just yeah, another of those things that just hasn't been part of the conversation. Well, well, that's because the argument was always framed in a very selective way. So uh, given that, you know, the whole uh, contention to freedom of movement was always framed in the, in, in the context of um, low-skilled uh, migrants coming from Eastern Europe, which, by the way, they also have a great value to their of economy. Of course, yeah. So let's just put that to the side. Um, but then you always hear Brexiteers saying, well, nobody's suggesting that we don't want the best and the brightest to come, you know. But the reality is you can say that that's all well and good. But what are the actual policy implications? You know, what are the policy? First of all, what are the policy implications for trade if you're leaving you're erecting huge and unnecessary trade barriers with your largest market and the largest in the world. And second, if you're going to have these um, restrictions on immigration, how does that affect all sectors, not just on the low end of the labor market, but highly skilled uh, migrants who are vital to the economy, make huge tax contributions. If they can't come. These are also people who have choice. So if they can't come, they won't come. Mm. 
It's just the fact. Indeed. Mm-hmm. Yes. A quick one back to our friend uh, Tory whip Chris Heaton-Harris. Academics are accusing him of McCarthyite behaviour after he wrote to all universities asking them to declare what they are teaching their students about Brexit. The MP for Daventry asked vice-chancellors for the names of professors who teach European affairs with particular reference to Brexit and for a copy of their syllabuses on online lectures. Just because. <laughs> it's cool. Don't worry about it. There's been a little bit of backpedalling, and I think Cho Johnson this morning claimed that he, he was doing it because he was writing a book. <laughs> she didn't mention it in his letter. Strangely enough. It's a secret book. Yes. Because that's what I do. If I want information for people, I don't tell them why I need it. I just yeah. say, just send me so it. So it only encourage them, wouldn't it? Just yeah. trust me. Is this a sign of kind of, you know, sinister ideological conformity or of just a fool? Well, Chris Patton, I think, uh, the former Conservative minister who's now the Chancellor of Oxford University, put it perfectly. What was his phrase? It's, he called the letter an extraordinary example of outrageous and foolish behaviour, behaviour offensive and idiotic Leninism. I don't think you can beat that. And it, in, in the worst no, kind of Leninism. Well, indeed, yes. Um, and also, you know, you, you look at the coverage, I note it wasn't at all difficult for the newspapers, The Guardian in particular, to find even pro-Brexit academics. And there are some who said this is a stupid idea, even though they are pro-Brexit. <laughs> Can you imagine John McDonnell had written to VCs asking for their teachings on neoliberalism? <laughs> well, we'll discuss that when it happens in a future episode. <laughs> yes. I have to say, file. I can reveal that this, this has actually happened before. I have here a, a letter, a similar letter, dated 1615 to the University of Padua in Italy, written by a Cardinal Bellarmini of the Inquisition, asking for details of any academics who teach about the Earth's position in the universe. Apparently he's particularly interested in a professor in the astronomy department by the name of Galileo. There you go. Galileo. So it's, yes, Galileo. Magnifico, no. Magnifico yes. There, so it's not new. These that, things have happened before. That's an amazing discovery. And there's another point to make in that, that these stories get picked up Um, by the European press as well. And you can imagine um, how that famous enemies of the people, um, when when the High Court ruled that, you know, Parliament would have to have a vote on Article 50, was it the Daily Mail that uh, named the judges, had photos of them and had, like, called them enemies of, of the people. These type of stories really give um, credence to the impression that, you know, Britain, which was known for its great parliamentary democracy and a system where everything is fair and proper, you know, the great judicial institutions, all of that is being chipped away. So there's a huge reputational damage for Britain every time something like this happens in the context of of Brexit. Looks like you guys have lost it. Yep. Sorry. (laughs) Sorry, everyone. (laughs) That's quite enough news for one day. As you know, we've got a special guest with her. We've heard from it, uh, Nina Schick, political analyst, Sky, BBC, Bloomberg TV, and probably the most preeminent German Nepalese person <laughs> on the planet. <laughs> <laughs> Nina, having been involved in the in the Remain campaign, what was the kind of what came out in the, I suppose, in the post mortem, like why the Leave campaign worked and the Remain one didn't? I mean, bear in mind it was cl- it, it, we was still pretty close. It wasn't like a catastrophe. But what do you think was missed? Well, I think that the insistence that the argument would just be made in facts and that the economic argument would win the day was a mistake because what the Leave campaign did very well was seize upon emotional arguments. And as we know, we're a bit fast and loose with the facts. (laughs) Um, But what the Leave campaign did very, very well was take Brexit and present it as a silver bullet to a lot of society's woes, right? And this is why Brexit is such a mess right now, because you promised everything to everyone and it's just not possible. And I think that 
one of the main problems with with the Remain campaign was basically it was run by the conservatives, right? So they, first of all, wouldn't condone any blue on blue attacks in the beginning. Um, Second, um, because it was run by number 10, because... Well, Jeremy Corbyn, he was probably a net, well, really bad for the Remain campaign. Um, there, there was, you had a campaign which basically a prime minister had been talking about, you know, how he rules nothing out. He's ready to walk away. He's going to reform the EU and is totally critical of the EU. And then as soon as, you know, his renegotiation is over and he comes home, he's like, well, now um, World War Three might break out if we leave the EU or something, you know, tried to make an emotional argument about how Europe has brought peace to the continent. And I think British voters were just like, well, why what we don't believe you this is ridiculous so this combined with what's going on with labor jeremy corbyn skepticism and the fact that there were real issues that are not necessarily related to brexit in the country just combined to make the perfect storm and once that ball got rolling well you can stop it and of Mm. course events on the continent massively massively i would say swung the vote the fact that the migration crisis happened in um, 2015 was hugely important to winning the brexit argument here even though the UK had an opt-out of EU asylum policy. Were there things that you would have, uh, that you could have done differently then, do you think? Or, you know, because so many, like you said, there's all these forces coming together. And sometimes, again, as with, as with Trump, sometimes there's almost feeling of this kind of, what seemed like a shock in retrospect seems almost inevitable. Um, were there ways of, I mean, if your, if your whole thing is like, you're, you're, you're into facts, you're an economic expert, you know, you've got a very, very, very strong case there. Would, would, would a wholly different emotional narrative have been needed to be created? I, I think so. And I think, uh, you know, there were loads of people on the Remain campaign who did want to make a more emotional argument for the EU. And they were basically overruled by number 10 because they applied the logic of Tory campaigning, which had won them the general election of 2015. Where you, don't, you, know, you talk about the economy, you talk about facts. And at the end of the day, voters will always vote with their head, not with their hearts. So if they think it's going to hurt them economically, that's the route they're going to go. Um, but what the Leave campaign was able to do was say, well, not only is this um, a highly emotive issue, but it'll also make you richer because we'll get the £350 million back from the EU to spend on the NHS. So I, I think the fact that the Remain campaign was basically run by number 10 and run by a party who is very skeptical and bashing on about how, you know, has been doing this for years, basically bashing the EU for lots of problems, which are not necessarily to do with the EU, just meant that it didn't have enough credibility. So one of the things we're constantly told is, is that Germany needs to sell cars to us, so the EU will do a deal. The, car, the German cars are very, very important. Um, <laughs> what's the truth behind that? Oh, the German car manufacturers. I am like a broken record on this one. <laughs> <laughs> this, this is like always key in my German splaining. Okay, so <laughs> I know that argument was made and it takes like an integral part of the Brexit um, argument. I mean, you hear ministers saying it even to this day. Um, but something that's really missing in the Brexit debate, uh, not just about German car manufacturers or Italian Prosecco producers or French cheese producers. Um, why don't we actually listen to what the EU27 are saying? Why don't we actually listen to what the CEO of Porsche is saying or what the CEO of Daimler is saying? Essentially, yes, they do sell a lot of cars to the UK and it is one of their biggest export markets. It's important that they continue to trade with the UK. However, 
given that the UK has asked for, you know, as much access to the single market as possible, but it's not certain whether or not they will adhere to the regulatory standards and common institutions and laws of the EU. Well, then, if that's the case, then the German car manufacturers will want to protect the single market with its super complicated, high valued um, supply chains, its common institutions, its regulations. So there will be no cherry picking. And this is not an emotional argument. It is not one that they're trying to punish the Brits. It's in their cold, hard economic interest to protect a market of 450 million consumers rather than if, if that is the choice between Britain and the single market. I mean, it's quite clear where their loyalties lie. So if the choice is that they have to have some short-term term economic pain for long-term strategic interests, well, there's no choice. You know, it's, it's obvious for them. So this argument that they're cutting off their nose to spite their face, it's, it's just ridiculous. Anyone should go to listen. They, the German car manufacturer CEOs have been giving loads of interviews. I'm also wondering if uh, the German car industry and the other car industry in Europe is looking at the state of the British car market at the moment. We've had very strong sales because of these PCP contracts where you basically, it's like a kind of a sort of higher purchase um, scheme that gets you the car quick um, for what appears initially to be a reasonable price per month. Um, They're now thinking that we've stuffed an awful lot of cars into that market. That market is now turning down. Economic growth in Britain is now growing more slowly than other major economies. They're thinking, well, we were going to have a bit of a downturn anyway, and Brexit is making it worse, a lot worse. So it's actually not a priority as much as uh, as it was before. Um, you know, eventually we will, you know, we'll, some sort of deal will be done. We will sell cars into these countries, and of course, in the case of the German manufacturers, they're almost they're mostly luxury cars, and therefore they're people who can afford to pay an extra. 10% or whatever tariff. So they know that the market will be there in the long term and they know that in the short term it's not going to be great. So again, that takes the pressure off them to pressure Angela Merkel, to pressure Barnier to, to give Britain a great deal. Yeah, I mean, the idea that somehow uh, German car manufacturers will be lobbying Merkel the day after Brexit to sign a good deal is, is frankly it's just ridiculous. Um, uh, but uh, another place where German car manufacturers sell a lot of their cars is China. Um, guess what? They don't. Uh, so this idea that somehow you have you have to be out of the EU to do business with these like huge tra- uh, emerging economies mm. is also ridiculous. Um, you need to make good products and you need to sell good services. Um, and that point you made there that, that self-interest so often gets translated as punishment. Mm. And it seems to be based on a sort of British entitlement that really the top concern of the EU27 you know, each day should be just like, you know, how can we help Britain out? And, and if they do anything that doesn't seem to, regardless of their own interests, if they do anything that doesn't seem to be good for Britain, it's somehow this sort of malicious, vindictive, emotional sort of lashing out. And it's just like, it, it just make you realise the kind of like the sort of psychosis of Brexit Britain. That they're like, well, hang on, self-interest is fine for us, but everybody else has to kind of be nice to us. So basically the answer is always just like, we should do what's best for Britain. 
everyone else should do what's best for Britain. And you're like, do you not see that that doesn't work? Yeah, well, it's, so, it's, it's absolutely ridiculous because obviously, you know, the UK decided on its own volition to call the referendum, uh, Brexit won. Uh, the, the EU said, well, we don't want you to leave before you left. Okay, that's the democratic prerogative of the British people. But then to say, well, we kind of want to have everything that we had before, but we just don't want to pay and we don't want the jurisdiction of the European court and just do it this way. Uh, well, the EU is like, well, no, that's not how it works. And this kind of hysteria blaming the EU, um, they when they have a lot of other issues on their plate, like I just have to say Brexit is not the number one concern. Like Merkel's I mean, got a lot to deal with. Well, Merkel's forming a government right now. Then you have the ongoing issue with the migration crisis. Then, of course, you have Italian elections. We had Austrian elections. We have potentially Spain breaking up in violent disarray. We've had the Czech elections. Um, shall I go on? I I mean, there are many, many other issues that the EU is dealing with. And the, the fact was always that if Brexit was about to, ha- if Brexit did happen, the EU will have to spend a lot of time, a lot of money sorting Brexit or negotiating with the UK at a time when there are other issues on its plate. So it's largely seen as a damage control exercise. And they've, I think they've accepted it. They're like, OK, well, the UK is out. We'll kind of do the best deal that we can. But to kind of assume and demand that Brexit is the number one issue for all 27 other leaders is, is frankly ridiculous. And you worked on Macron's campaign. Um, now, obviously, there's kind of, he, he's not an uncomplicated figure. There's a lot of kind of, he's getting a lot of heat. His poll ratings are, have suffered. Um, but it was, it, was an, it was a remarkable victory for a kind of like, uh, you know, a new party and a new sort of centrist sort of vision. Do you think that that's something that could that would be in the same way that when there's a right-wing populist victory, we, we're looking for where that will be replicated elsewhere in Europe or in, in America? Do you think that, that, that Macron could be replicated in, in sort of other countries? Do you think it was a particular, the circumstances of what was happening in French politics at that point, kind of the collapse of you know, the other parties? Well, I mean, he, he, there were certain things that made him lucky. So if Fillon hadn't been caught up in his <laughs> corruption scandal, maybe we wouldn't have a President Macron in the Elysee. But certainly his, his style and, you know, his like move fast and break things approach to politics has been replicated already. We saw it with the uh, election of this, uh, the Austrian Chancellor, Sebastian Kurz, who's, by the way, only 30 years old. Um, although he did his, he had like a Macron style movement on the right wing, right? So, so that kind of Macron idea is being replicated. I think the interesting thing about Macron right now is that... The, the two opponents, his two opponents, Mélenchon on the left and um, Le Pen on the right, they're both kind of in disarray. And he's got control of the Assemblée Nationale. And what he's really planning to do with France now is push forward these economic reforms. So it's his, he's calculated that he'll be able to do this by the end of next year and that the real uh, impact of his economic reforms will be felt in France and that he'll win the next election. So whilst the UK is becoming more like France, France is trying to become more like the UK. Another irony of Brexit. <laughs> Obviously, we, all, we often dream on this podcast of the creation of this uh, a new party. Let's call it the CDP, the centrist dance party, <laughs> that will be uh, ardently liberal, socially liberal, generally 
pro-European and wants to reverse Brexit, etc., etc. But we haven't seen it, and we have this great big albatross hanging over us of the SDP, this fo- this party that was formed in the 1980s. The big difference there was that it wasn't young, flamboyant politicians. It was a lot of clapped-out old politicians that formed it. But the was weird thing now is that people seem to want to start these parties on Twitter. <laughs> you know, sort of staying up late, and they get a few tweets, and they go, OK, let's do it! And then the next day they're just like... I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. It just—it's this—it's just this strange kind of like phantasm around the edges, like they're somehow going to be this sort of centrist pro-Brexit party. I don't believe that, that that's going to happen. I don't believe that the the circumstances are remotely similar to what was happening in France. I don't. But yeah, I just—I just, I we just can't. A person either, have we? We have we, the leader. That's it. I mean, you do need—you do need a kind of. I mean, I'm not saying it's like a cult of personality, but you do need like a—you do need like a very strong character there was something very appealing about macron as a persona although although i don't know is he is that sort of fading a little now no i i think he's he's definitely um there is something quite special about him and you know like uh, he's got a little bit of salad to him as well but it's france you know he's not doing too well in the opinion polls but he doesn't care about that he's he cares about pushing forward his economic reform agenda and he actually wants to deliver results so for macron i think the real um test will come in a two or three years you know has he transformed france enough for if he delivers results, he'll be reelected, and I think that with Macron, um, Brexit and Donald Trump were also like integral to his victory because this idea that uh, you know right-wing populism is overtaking Europe, um, you saw that also in the German election where there was like a feminine opposition to that, and that is something to do with um, Macron's election as well. Now for a commercial break, they say that all Romaniacs are secretly funded by the elite, and this week it's true because this episode of Romaniacs is supported by founder of the Virgin Empire and space travel entrepreneur Sir Richard Branson, specifically his new autobiography, Finding My Virginity, which is out now on audiobook from Penguin Random House Audio. Our producer, Andrew Harrison, has been busy finding Richard Branson's virginity. Andrew, what's it like? Well, it's essentially part two of Branson's life after losing my virginity. It's from 1999 onwards, so it's Virgin Mobile, Virgin Media, Virgin Active, Vexed Question of Virgin Trains and Virgin Galactic. Uh, he meets Nelson Mandela and Al Gore, and he fights with Donald Trump. Um, you know, his house on Necker Island burns down. It is the world of Richard Brunson, as you know it. And it's, it's quite sort of affecting. You know, his writing style is it's, it's very transparent and unadorned. It's, it's, it's quite a, it's episodic snapshots rather than a grand arcing narrative. The thing that really stands out is that this is the guy who was doing disruption before Uber. This is the guy who was looking at broken businesses or businesses that don't really deliver and thinking, how can we do this better from the point of view of, uh, of customer service and actually treating you, the customer, like a human being? So it, it is actually a genuinely illuminating read and certainly uh, makes you think differently about uh, the, the ease with which he sets up businesses. He just seems to set them up on a whim and, and, and kind of say to the heart of what is making a bad business a bad one and how to make it into a good one. If he wants to invest in any podcasts, we are available. Give us a shout. <laughs> so, Richard, if you're out there, we, we you are a Remain hero, so uh, come and sh- show us some Remain love. So that's um, Finding My Virginity, the new autobiography by Sir Richard Branson, out now from Penguin Random House Audio and available to buy on Audible. Uh, it's the un- unabridged version read by Steve West, and there is an abridged version read by Sir Richard himself out later in the year. So when we launch Romaniacs Atlantic Airlines and Romaniacs Trains, you'll know where we got all the ideas. Finally, pull up a chair and open the chocolate hobnobs because it's time for the first in an irregular series, the Romaniacs Book Club. And we're starting with Romaniac hero George Orwell, specifically his essay Notes on Nationalism, the classic warning from history published in Polemic magazine in May 1945. 
Written during the closing months of the Second World War, Notes on Nationalism attempts to make a distinction between patriotism, which he defines as devotion to a particular place and a particular way of life, which one believes to be the best in the world but has no wish to force on other people, and nationalism, which is inseparable from the desire for power. Over the years, it's become a touchstone for people who believe that patriotism can be compatible with progressive ideals. But what does it have to tell us about now when nationalism is distorting not just Europe but the entire world? We reread it this week and we hope you did too. Nina, what did you make of it reading it now? Well, it's it's fascinating how so many of his writings can be applied to today's context. And again, being German, um, given our recent history, um, we think nationalism is a very dirty word. So when you think about how the Brexit de- debate in particular has become you know, one that is vouched or, or like termed in nationalism. It's something that we see as extremely disturbing. And moreover, this kind of radical adherence to an ideology that seems to disregard any notion of facts or n- not being willing to listen to other people. And I'm sure we're also subject to our own biases. But I think we try try to listen to the other side, um, but because I think we we like facts, um, we come to more logical conclusions. So, well, I like the way that, that I mean, when you interpret nationalism, he's not just talking about actually related to nations. He's almost talking about kind of like unbending ideology. And what I I really like, I think, and separates him, I think, from more. Um, didactic judgmental writers is that he's kind of always looking like you say the psychology and seeing it in himself and he he writes I'm trying to isolate and identify tendencies which exist in all our minds and pervert our thinking without necessarily occurring in a pure state or operating continuously so I think the reason why a lot of these lines are resonant is because you go well yeah this is this is sort of people it's specifically Europe during wartime that he's writing about but it's it's also just the way that the sort of people behave and not even just about political beliefs. It could be about, you could say the same about like anti-vaxxers or, you know, all kinds. Indeed, and I, I think it's odd that he chose in the end the word um, nationalism because he, he, he cogitates at the beginning saying, well, maybe it's not quite the right word because it does apply to all these other things. There is actually a word that covers it, and I wonder why he didn't use it. The word is chauvinism. The Oxford Dictionary describes this as a person displaying excessive or prejudiced support for their own cause, group or sex. Uh, in other words, it is that broader thing. Um, that uh, it is, and it is, a, it is a natural human trait to attach yourself to a cause that is part of your, per, you know, it was personal branding before the phrase personal branding existed. It seemed to me that you say I'm a an ardent anti-vaxxer, or I'm a, you know, I I I I believe that Britain is such a wicked imperialist power that I will praise any terrible regime that uh, that is an enemy to Britain. You know, it, it's it's a natural human tendency. And why do we think that Orwell is this sort of He's in a very unusual position where he's kind of a heroic figure, but for, for people of quite different political positions, you know, the, the sort of famously when 1984 came out, he had to write a, dictate a press release going, I am a socialist. Like, this is not an anti-socialist tract. You know, I support the Labour Party. He supported the Labour Party, but I actually didn't think it was like sort of left-wing enough. And so it's like he's been sort of embraced as this sort of conservative, this cold warrior, as a sort of the arch-centrist, because I think that he was able to you know, almost like a psychologically centrist in the way that he could examine the, the, the sort of the failings of his own side. But, you know, if you'd asked him, he would consistently said, well, like, obviously I'm on, I'm on the left. Like, how does he manage to be this sort of figure for all 
Well, I think he gets a lot of kudos simply for being a great writer. You know, I used to work at The Economist. Page one of The Economist style guide uh, begins with Orwell's six rules for writing. You know, uh, if you can cut out a word, cut it out. If you can use a short word instead of a long word, use, use a short word. And he, he lived his gospel in his writings. Therefore, you have to respect him because he is such a, a towering thinker and such a terrific writer who, you know, in all of his books, describes things that instantly hit you as being true. The way the animals behave in Animal Farm is just as convincing as the death of Stalin today, you know. What do you think he'd make of the current situation? Uh, throw his head in his hands in despair, I guess. What do you think, Dorian? Well, it's just sort of so much of what he was criticising as being inactive, but then it, then it always it always would have been, and I suppose... I mean, there is the question because he died, you know, and he was fairly young. And there's huge debates about, well, what would he have, what would he have been like during the Cold War? Would he have been one of those people that, that had a kind of left-to-right conversion? So it's kind of like a, a Christopher Hitchens, simplifying Hitchens' journey there, but, you know, that kind of thing where he would actually have been so enraged by his sort of dislike of communism that that ended up making him a fellow traveller with kind of, you know... Conservative stuff. I like to think that always in there, he's 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 kind of he's critical in he's sort of omnidirectionally critical and including himself. He's looking at kind of like failings inside, sort of uh, inside our own brains and how we process the world. And so with Brexit, I think that totally manifests so much that he's talking about. I just want to quote a couple of lines here. He goes, "Nationalism is power hunger tempered by self deception." Check. <laughs> Certain topics have become so infected by considerations of prestige that a genuinely rational approach is almost impossible. Check. Political or military commentators, like astrologers, can survive almost any mistake because their more devoted followers do not look to them for an appraisal of the facts, but for the stimulation of nationalistic loyalties. Yeah, that's fake news, you know, in 1945, yeah. And there's actually a bit where he took, basically seems to sort of set up 1984, which he was definitely thinking about at this stage you know and therefore sets up the whole idea of of sort of fake news and the climate that allows fake news where he goes the general uncertainty as to what's really happening makes it easier to cling to lunatic beliefs since nothing is ever quite proved or disproved the most unmistakable fact can be impudently denied and so it's sort of the way that you 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 look for it to sort of go oh, how is this relevant to brexit how is this relevant to trump but then it ends up identifying so much about the entire culture and the way that we we talk and think about politics. There's one, th- one thought that occurs to me that there's one type of nationalist that Orwell criticises, which is the instinctively anglophobe branch of the intelligentsia. And he had in mind those that were sort of completely defeatist during the war, saying we can never win this. Now, it strikes me that uh, our rivals on pro-Brexit bod- podcasts could quote that section if they did notes on nationalism and say, well, that's that's the Romaniacs crowd, that is, the defeatist anglophobe. A lot. And I, we, I think we need to be ready with an answer for this. And my answer is that the parallel is not valid. In World War II, in the 40s, we faced a choice between continuing to fight for our liberty or being overrun by a sort of murderous regime intent on world domination. So it was fair then, it seems to me, to criticise any defeatism about Britain's war effort. But now we face a choice between staying in the Union, which for all of its faults has been good for us, or jumping off a cliff without a plan. I mean, it seems to me that defeatism about that is perfectly rational. Well, what I'd say about that is that the problem with the whole sort of St. George idea is that he's so wise and he predicted everything, um, is that we forget that he was also kind of like a particular individual in a particular time with particular kind of like grievances. And he was very involved in kind of, you know, literary circles and he had feuds. 
with various intellectuals, and he was very mean to to, to sort of a lot of pacifists, for example. Um, and that bit, it's almost like what we now call sort of subtweeting. It's like you're reading between the lines, like, who's he having a go at there? And I think, <laughs> I think so much of himself, he prided himself, despite obviously having quite a privileged sort of background, he prided himself on not being like all those other intellectuals. Like he sort of weirdly, he, it was so much his sense of self that he would, he would not be like his intellectuals. The intellectuals didn't understand everything and they constantly, you know, got everything wrong. And, he, and some of his judgments were, were like really unfair on that front. And I find that that's always the thing with reading Orwell. You just go so sensible, so clear-sighted, so sort of such a timeless insight into human nature. And then just like, sort of just like, an elbow in the ribs yeah. of somebody who'd annoyed him in a pub in 1942. <laughs> you know, there's always that kind of, like, the, the pettiness of the man is, is sort of sometimes comes into that. And perhaps that's why the Brexit podcast people would take <coughs> his pettiest line and Indeed. go, see, he agrees yes, with but us. But we still have to have answers ready for this, and that parallel yeah. doesn't, doesn't apply. We're not in a war with Europe, thankfully. Um, that's one thing I wanted to ask you, Nina. Um, I mean, Orwell is so... I mean, he's obviously sort of read around the world, but he's so much a part of the kind of the British identity and, and again, interpreted in sort of multifarious ways that John Major could quote, like, one line and sort of go, Orwell's my guy. Um, what does he mean in sort of, you know, what does he mean to you? Did it, was he, is he kind of like one of those stars in the firmament? Well, obviously he's like um, behemoth of intellectual um, thought and political, political thought, but... Um it's interesting, his notes on nationalism, of course, if you look at it from, again, a German, Germany-centric view, this is very pertinent to the EU because the entire German reason behind the EU is that it's precisely to fight you know, any kind of ideology like nationalism, which obviously the, the national socialists were, to, to come up again. Um, but I don't think that he is... Of course, he's a recognized author, but I don't think that, you know, in Germany, we also have our own authors. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I've heard of some. <laughs> Couldn't name any of them, but I'm aware there are I some. Yeah. I don't know if he would, uh, you know, occupy the same literary place in German intellectual thought as he does in Britain. But mm. nonetheless, um, his writings are obviously very pertinent to what's going on here. We did say, um, of course, that this is the Romaniacs book club and we want uh, Romaniacs to discuss it on Twitter. So we should mention that one of the, one of the earliest comments we got from somebody called TikTok Maths, TikTok Maths perhaps, uh, who says, are we Romaniacs nationalistic about our position or about the EU in that we start from the idea that EU membership's a good thing and proceed from there? Uh no, we're fine. <laughs> That's a good um, answer. No, I think I think that, I think you know self-examination sort, sort, sort of is is really good. And I suppose, just speaking my own thinking, is that I am quite sort of evidence-based, and it's not as if I have this sort of like deep-down tribal loyalty to the EU. It's just that, and I have questioned it. I am like, have I just committed to this position? And indeed, hosting a podcast from this position. And is that kind of blinding me to other things? And so every week I'm looking for kind of signs like, well, you know, maybe what, you know, what's that? What's the other side? You know, I'll listen to a pro-Brexit politician. I'll read a pro-Brexit article. And it's like there is nothing there. And of course, you know, is this confirmation bias? Is this rationalization? You know, you're trying to kind of work out your own, is your brain playing tricks on you? Um, 
but I, I do find that I keep coming back to like the evidence. It's the evidence rather than some kind of like my blood roars at the sound of Ode to Joy, you know. And as Nina was saying earlier on, one of the problems with the Remain campaign is that people on our side refuse to be emotional and didactic and, and dogmatic about their own side. We, we, we fail to get the emotion across rather than being too emotional. Yeah. Did, did we need more EU nationalism in the campaign? <laughs> well, I, just to address what you just said, um, I also think I'm evidence-based and like the biggest reason for uh, me disagreeing with Brexit is precisely because I kind of have maybe a better understanding of what the other EU countries are saying than what the ministers are saying. So I know for a fact that it's not true. You know, every time a minister opens his mouth about Germany and talks about the German car manufacturer or or what Merkel will do for them, um, it's simply not true. So therefore, I don't think I'm being radical about it. I think it's just based in reality. I think it passes the Orwellian test then. (laughs) Is, Is it true? Is it based in reality? Yes. So we're fine. You, the listener, are fine too. We're entirely right. (laughs) (laughs) And here we are at the end of the show. Thanks to our special guest, Nina Schick. Thanks to Peter Collins. Our thoughts are with Ian Dunt. As usual, we're going to play out with a roll call of our latest Patreon backers over Demon is a Monster, our lovely theme tune by Corner Shop. If you want to shout out yourself, plus those coveted mugs, bags and T-shirts, then visit our Patreon page via Romaniacs.com. And here's the traditional sign-off. This week in French from the Queen of Scar herself, the proudly bilingual Rhoda Dakar of the special AKA and the Body Snatchers. She's on tour right now. We'll see you next week. Au revoir et défendre la bonne cause. Thanks on behalf of Romaniacs to Sarah Murphy, Simon Crammond, Tim and Amy, Squozen, James Pete, Mike Bartlett, Totoro, Janet Shepherdson, Jonathan Church and Jonathan Little. And it's thanks from me to William Reed, not probably the William Reed from the Jesus and Mary chain, but who knows, Sasha Zarb, Wayne Jolly, Jonathan Bergen, Anne-Marie P, Chris Elmer, Arthur Snell, David Howsham, Chris Durham and Shirley Dunster. And finally for me, many thanks to Ant Bagshaw, Alexandra Dimmer, Justin Purrington, Scurra, Phil, just Phil, Philip Pond, B. Gare, Andreas Froby, Kevin Sharp and Andrew Peter Davis. If we haven't read out your name yet, don't worry, there's always next week. Au revoir, mes petits. Thank you.